I remember sitting at the feet of a right good preacher a while back, and we were talking about how you preach certain sermons on particular days of importance in the church, Christmas, Easter, Stewardship Sunday. All preachers like to think they are good enough and grandiose enough to be able to preach the kind of sermon on Stewardship Sunday that you will all cross out the number you've written down and increase it by an exponential amount. When we raised that, op- that possibility to this uh, right good preacher, he said, give it up. Just don't preach the kind of sermon that will make them tear their pledge card up and go home. <laughs> this morning's text comes to us from a part in Luke's gospel, which is right at the end of Jesus' journeying as he is about to enter into Jerusalem. All this time, we've been studying these stories in Luke, and it continues to lead up to and point to this moment when Jesus faces this passion of him, of his life, of his gift, of his love in Jerusalem, ultimately on the cross. And each succeeding story has got, become more and more poignant and powerful in its presentation. This morning's is the, really the last teaching moment for Jesus until that time that he enters Jerusalem. Therefore, may God open up to us an understanding of this word. It's known, by the way, as the parable of the talents. We know it in Matthew as that. I never preached it from Luke's gospel. In fact, it's always preached from Matthew. Uh, There are some differences here that I invite you to listen for. And also, I would like to say that there are two actual parables woven into this one. Luke tends to do that. And so I'm just going to read the one parable about the pounds or the talents or the minas, according to whichever uh, gospel you choose to read. So hear the word as it's given to us in the 11th verse of the 19th chapter of Luke. As the disciples heard these things... Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. When he returned, after a long time, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money, and uh, he called them, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a little, you shall have authority over ten cities." And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because I thought you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. 
Why then did you not put your money in the bank at least, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, what he has will be taken away. What's this about? How do we receive this? It doesn't sound to me like something Jesus would say at all, but more like something Donald Trump might say, or the NFL as the Jaguars are playing it out this year. I've heard this verse used and this parable in which this verse is found to extol the virtues of capitalism. See, the sermon went, Jesus is teaching us how to be enterprising and industrial, investing and using capital that we have to increase our gain. Those who are enterprising increase their wealth, while the one who sat on it ended up on welfare. And while there may be some economic truth to this, money in circulation increases in a healthy economic system, Jesus, we need to remember, was telling a parable, not giving an economics lesson. In case you were confused, Jesus' version of economics is found earlier in the Gospel of Luke. In a conversation he has with a rich young ruler who walks up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's an arrogant question to begin with. And Jesus toying with him, says, well, you know the commandments. You just need to keep the commandments. And arrogantly, the good young ruler says, well, I've done all that. And I think probably with a smile on his face, Jesus says, then, okay, then sell all you have, give it to the poor, then you will find eternal life. Even if Jesus was being a little hyperbolic with that man, throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is always calling us to care for poor people. For Jesus, Economics 101 meant to be compassionately generous to those who have little. Blessed are the poor, he says in his Beatitudes, while Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And later Luke will say, not only blessed are the poor, but he will say, woe to the rich. And for Luke, the poor were those who had no power, no vote, no anything. while the rich made the rules and had all the power. Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich, was Jesus' economics. And no matter what economic standard we choose to live by, this turns everything we've ever learned on its head. When Jesus lived, the concepts of capitalism and socialism, excuse me, didn't even exist For one thing, there weren't many merchants. Basically, people farmed or fished or herded. Some were soldiers, some were priests working for the temple, some were tradesmen like blacksmiths. 
It was a very basic economic system, a culture built on meeting the lowest levels in Maslow's needs hierarchy. Using Jesus to teach us about economics today is like asking him to teach us about metaphysics or quantum mechanics or biochemistry or how to use a computer. Turning Jesus' parables into literal translation usually ends up doing the exact opposite of what they were meant to do. Jesus uses these parables to surprise us with an unexpected ending that turns the world upside down, which is exactly what the disciples were about to face when they entered Jerusalem. Luke tells us Jesus told this parable as they were entering Jerusalem because they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. That everything that Jesus had taught them, everything that they had believed in and worked hard for for these three years was going to come true immediately. Instead, they would find out that the one they followed and believed in would bring the kingdom of God, but not the kind of kingdom they expected. They expected no more suffering, no more tears, justice and righteousness, fairness, no more poverty. They expected no more war. They expected peace and shalom. But what they got was Jesus dying on a cross right before their eyes. And they were left abandoned and feeling absolutely hopeless. This was so important to Luke and his followers a generation after that because they too expected Jesus' imminent return, yet Jesus had not yet come. They expected Jesus immediately, just like the disciples yet know Jesus. So Luke, just like Jesus in this story, uses this parable as a way to help us understand that we are not left destitute or hopeless, but instead we actually have received the kingdom of God no matter what happened to Jesus. It is at hand, Jesus said. It is within us, the gospel says, and Jesus wanted them to know that they had been given this abundant treasure overflowing with God's grace and love even now. Now their job and ours is to claim it for what it is and then to use it to increase. Remember, he's not talking about money here, but treasure, the kingdom of God, the spiritual kind of treasure. It's just as real as the material kind. The parable is pretty simple. A nobleman goes on a long trip. He calls ten of his servants together. He gives them each one mina, which is a huge amount. It's about three years' wages for a common laborer. And he tells them to do business with it. When he comes back, he has an accounting. He calls three of them forward. One has done well with his. He gives them him ten cities. Another's done well. He gives him five cities. And the third has stuffed it in a handkerchief and buried it in his under his bed. The one who did not invest his, the parable says, the ruler accuses him, I tell you, all those who have more will be given 
but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away, and he sends the man off with nothing. The operative question here is this. What was the difference between the two who invested and the one who buried his money? Apparently, those who invested were able to risk what they had been given because they were living out of a place of abundance and hope. This full awareness of God's abundance and hope while the other who did not invest was living out of a place of scarcity and fear. Trust versus fear. The man even confesses it. Master, I thought you were a harsh man and I was afraid, so I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth. This lesson seems clear to me, at least, and to Luke's church, it is ours as well. The kingdom of God, as we think it is, probably still has not yet come. There is still suffering and injustice and brokenness and war. At least the kingdom we've been taught to expect. But what do we know? Apparently there are two options, therefore. One is we can hunker down, find ourselves a safe little container to crawl into, just like you do under threat and fear. We can dig a foxhole. We can bury. In 1977, when I was first married, my new father-in-law took me aside to show me a book that he said was probably the most important book in his life right then. I was sort of anxious to find out about that book, so he sat me down in a study and he showed it to me. The title was The Upcoming Financial Apocalypse. He was convinced that our economic system was going to hell in a handbag because it was no longer based on the gold standard. So out of that fear, he basically wrapped all his wealth up and sent it to Switzerland to buy gold stock with. Sometimes gold is a good investment, but if it is bought out of fear in order to maintain your capital, it is shown to be a poor one over time. Yet, my father-in-law's fear convinced him to stay out of the stock market. He was coming from a place of scarcity and anxiety. The fact is that we do this in any number of ways, and we're all guilty. We hold on to our traditions, our old sacred traditions, thinking that whatever might come next cannot nearly be so good. We hunker down uh, with all the old ways of doing things just like my mama and my grandmama did, afraid that if we give them up, it's all lost. I had a friend in Atlanta who was a widower. He was widowed at uh, about 70 years of age. He refused to come out of his house for months. When he finally did, he continued to live as if he was married. He would talk about his uh, late wife as if she were still alive. He still wore uh, the wedding ring on his hand, which he did until he died. Yet he never, since her death, invested himself back into life because he was living out of the scarcity of her death. We do it in church. The mainline churches are under threat these days, we say, with the loss of members and the divisions that keep fractioning our communion. 
What are we going to do in such a time? We'll, we'll keep the church painted and we'll draw straight lines around our territory and we'll re, completely redefine who we are and we will make sure everybody understands our dogma and our doctrine and our theology and we will avoid doing anything that it seems to push the envelope because we're scared. Foxhole living, this is my bumper sticker for the day, Foxhole living only leads to graveyard dying. And in most cases, just like it truly is, these fears end up being self-imposed. There's another way, Jesus says, and it's clear in this parable. Investing the gift of life. We can choose to see life that is not scarce at all, but full of incredible Abundance. Abundant in God's grace and love. Abundant with resources. Abundant with opportunities. Abundant with hope. And then we can live accordingly. Instead of fear, trust. Instead of dread, hope. Instead of thinking about what we lack, we are instead full of gratitude for what we have. Friends, in spite of the fact that we cannot completely control our fears, we can, however, choose the way we will respond to them. Jesus, as he faced his demise, and Luke, as he faced the long, slow, everyday struggle of faith waiting for the kingdom to come, told this parable to people like us in order to get us to stand up out of our self-imposed holes of fear and to step out into the world in hope with a sense of how much abundant life there is to grab hold of, to live fully into. In her well-quoted book, Traveling Mercies, Anne Lamott tells of how this works in a story about being on an airplane I'm going to read it because I can't say it as well as she writes it. My idea of everything going smoothly on an airplane is, A, they do not, we do not die in a slow-motion, fiery crash or get stabbed to death by terrorists, and, B, that none of the other passengers try to talk to me. But on this particular trip, it was not to be. The plane was delayed for a couple of hours, so everyone started trying to meet their neighbors. Seated to her left in row 38A was a Latvian woman of limited language skills who sounded like Andy Kaufman in the old TV series Taxi. Seated to her right was a man who was reading the new Christian book about the apocalypse who at one point turned to me and said, this is the best book I have ever read. You need to read it. It turns out she had. She had even written a review about the book calling it hardcore, right-wing, paranoid, anti-Semitic, homophobic, misogynistic propaganda, not to put too fine a point on it. But she decided not to tell him that. When the plane finally started its takeoff, the man asked her, Are you born again? He was rather prim and tense, she writes, maybe a little like David Eisenhower with a spastic colon. I did not know how to answer him for a moment, but finally came the answer. Yes, I am. 
My friends like to tell each other that I'm not really a born-again Christian. They think I'm Christian-ish, but I'm not. I'm just a bad Christian, a bad born-again Christian. So I told the truth that I am a believer, a convert that could go to a gathering of foot-washing Baptists and except for my dreadlocks look like I fit right in, I would wash their feet and I would let them wash mine. Then the man went on to tell me that he and his wife were homeschooling their children and he decided with enormous acrimony uh, to explain to me the radical, free-for-all, feminist, touchy-feely philosophy in his own county school system. And I knew instantly that this description was an act of aggression against me, that he was telepathically on to me, could see that I was the enemy, that I will be on the same curling team in heaven as Tom Hayden and Vanessa Redgrave. Some of these illustrations date us, by the way. Soon, however, we met a bunch of heavy turbulence, and after bouncing all over the sky for 20 minutes, things settled down again. And just about then, the pilot came back and asked if there was a doctor on board. A nurse sitting behind me got up and went to the back of the plane, and when she came back, she reported that a woman in the back was having a heart attack, but that there were doctors on board who were caring for her, and she thought that she would be okay. Good Lord, said the Christian man beside me. We looked at each other and sighed and shook our heads and continued to look at each other. God, I said, I just hope the snakes don't get out of the cargo hold next. <laughs> the prim, apocalyptic man smiled, and then he laughed out loud. The Latvian woman started laughing, too, and while I hate to look like I'm enjoying my own jokes too much, I started laughing as well. The three of us sat there in hysterics, and when we were done, the man reached over and patted the top of my hand, smiling gently, and the Latvian woman leaned close into me and beamed, and I leaned forward so that our foreheads touched for just a second. I thought, I don't know if there has been a miracle here, the smallest possible sort, the size of a tiny bird, but I feel like I am sitting with my cousins on a plane eight miles up a plane that is going to make it home. And this made me so happy that I suddenly thought, this is plenty of miracle for me to rest in now. Friends, we are surrounded by the amazing abundance of God's grace and these small-as-a-bird miracles. God's kingdom is ever-present with us, abundantly with us, when we choose to see it or hear it with our ears and our eyes. The proof of this is made clear to me every single year when this congregation invites each member to come forward and place in the basket on the table our commitment for the coming year. This year we have put together an abundant budget, a risk-taking budget, not a scarce budget. A risk-taking budget out of a sense of the abundance of God's amazing grace. And you come forward, and as best I can tell, in some joy and with incredible self-giving, 
built on hope and trust and faith, with an awareness of how much God has given us to live with in this world. And, and, and you invest yourselves in, in that symbolic act of laying that card in the basket in the name of Jesus Christ and discovering that that is not so much risk as it is necessity. For it is, as we know, the only way we will come to finally see and discern what the kingdom of God is truly like. You're invited during this time to do just that. Instead of passing the plate, we will ask you to come forward, as you do in communion, and place your offering as well as your uh, commitment card in the baskets uh, as you do. Let us bring forward the gifts of our lives and our labors.